Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Boldashino, and this is episode 46 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining myself is Dr. Peter Stansky. Pete, we survived Summit. What a week. I mean, like, what an awesome week. So many highlights, so little sleep. I even had a customer involved in the keynote. They know who they are. And I got a sneak peek of the action and the magic behind the curtain. And a big thanks to all those fellow listeners who hunted us out and said hello. Tell me about your week at Sydney Summit, Pete. Uh, and, and by the way, um, hello, everybody. It's um, so humbling to meet you all in person. Um, I took a great number of selfies, by the way, with many of the listeners um, and gave away lots of T-shirts. And uh, uh, I'm so sorry we actually ran out of T-shirts. We were in this huge, super huge abundance of them at one point, Shane. And then it got to the point where they were literally all gone. So uh, uh, there's lots of photos on social media. We had an amazing time, um, you know, 25,000 plus customers came along to listen to us uh, in person in the Sydney Summit, and we had uh, tens of thousands of people simultaneously uh, watching us uh, on the on the live Twitch stream, Shane. So um, yeah, it was great to have you on stage with me. It was really good. And for those who missed out on our Summit Live experiment, you can rewatch our action via our video on demand at twitch.tv forward slash AWS. But Pete, did you manage to get over and see Deep Racer? I did very, very briefly, though. I was actually running between lots of things, as I always do at Summit. Um, it was really cool. It's uh, so impressive. And um, by the way, we also cut through uh, live feeds from um, the actual tr- racetrack for Deep Racer as part of our Twitch live stream. So, uh, yeah, to your point, Shane, um, we have over six hours per day of nonstop continuous um, recording and streaming. So if you want to check out um, that segment as well on Deep Racer, um, there's some really interesting things to watch. Uh, so go tune in. You know, it was a really amazing setup. Elevated seating, multiple tracks, a dedicated access point for everyone. You know, quite a professional thing here. And look, a pro tip here, we've spoken about Deep Racer in the past, I think maybe about five episodes back. And I'm about to run a Deep Racer event for a customer. So the pro tip here is Wi-Fi access point latency is a key determination in lap times. So what I noticed that every track had its own dedicated AP. So, you know, if you are running one, ensure your channels aren't congested, you've got plenty of bandwidth, et cetera. So look, Deep Racer League, for those who aren't aware, is the world's first global autonomous racing league open to anyone based on the Amazon Deep Racers that we have just launched. And we ran ran this in Sydney Summit, like many of the other summits. And obviously, it's a race. And with racing, you know, there is a finish time. So get this, Pete. Whilst first place was being handed out, someone then set an unofficial new Deep Racer League world record at six point something seconds per lap. I know. I heard about this. It was really controversial. And just with like, you know, like with real life racing, there's a controversy around every corner, pardon the pun here. Um, And yes, that was phenomenal. As As the awards being handed out, somebody gets this unofficial record. How cool is that? It is. Look, so yes, you know, obviously the positions were already handed out, but watch out Seoul. Now, if you look at the replay of a Seoul lap, which is really impressive, but given that the artifact of Deep Racer, you know, your hard work, it's an algorithm. Mm. And what you can also do, you can submit this and have it compete online in the monthly virtual circuit race. So 
look out so i wonder though pete if someone has actually calculated the theory theoretical fastest lap time well absolutely you think know, about the motor speeds the uh, the side of the wheels um the um the position of the track um the cpu clock cycles <laughs> hey it's all deterministic right it is all right so look there's been a ton of things going on in the background around announcements and today we want to cover a few significant announcements that we missed in our themed getting started series and as builders we as we transition into more modern architectures we're going to try and cover these a little bit today so this would be cute to comedy shane the dad jokes uh maybe <laughs> how's that awesome i feel like i'm in a, in a baseball game in the u.s somewhere <laughs> all right but look before we do that on with the news Yes, indeed. So as you guys know, um, it's summit season and it continues on. And yes, we've just had Sydney. Um, there's plenty more of those going around the world. And also in the next five weeks, there will be six summits with a ton of uh, planning behind the scenes um, taking place. Um, well, there are some great pictures, by the way, on social media of the uh, past AWS summits, including of you and me and many others. Um, but by the way, uh, in terms of what is coming up next, uh, we are in a in store for a treat. We have Mumbai um, Summit on the 15th of May and also on the same day, just a few hours difference though, in Ottawa in Canada. Uh, and on the 22nd of May, we've also got Stockholm, um, which is awesome. So um, we have a heap more to be uh, to come. Uh, so by the way, if you are at a browser right now, punch into your favorite search engine AWS events page as a search query, and you'll get a list of a whole bunch of other ones. So um, in terms of updates, uh, look, we have no new regions announced, and but we did in the last show announce that the Hong Kong region has now gone live, uh, which brings us to a total of 21 global regions all around the world, uh, made up of 64 availability zones. And we still have um, four more to come online, which is in Cape Town, in Bahrain, the Middle East, Milan and Italy, um, and Jakarta. These are all in the works. And look, CloudFront, I have been reading, has hit the gym. It is bulking up. My Chime webhook, you know, those webhooks we previously <laughs> discussed in the last uh, episode was spamming our feed with CloudFront updates on May the 7th. Yes, there's a lot to talk about, right? And uh, we continue to grow. Uh, we've added 11, right? 11 new edge locations, bringing a total of 180 <laughs> points of presence. It's huge. Um, and these are in Salt Lake City in Utah, in Boston, Massachusetts, in Seattle, Washington, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, in Japan, in Tokyo. Uh, and in India, we've got a, a whole bunch of them in uh, two in Hyderabad, two in Bangalore, and two in Delhi. And also remember, guys, that um, you know, CloudFront is really about content delivery uh, to make sure your bits get closer uh, with the lowest latency to um, your customers and your end users. Uh, it's a great building block to be able to get your website fully accelerated. You know, it covers about 60, so a CloudFront covers about 69 cities across 30 countries. Um, and there is a point of presence pretty close to where you are. And by the way, we, we monitored the internet weather, Shane, and that's how we figure out where, where to actually put a CloudFront pop uh, and a CloudFront cache as well. Um, so even though, it, while you may not have one in your city, perhaps, uh, it is pretty much on a backbone, which means those bits still get pretty quickly to your browser. So uh, what about some other stats, Pete? You know, what's a little bit interesting at the moment? Yeah, and look, we haven't spent too much time in the past episodes when we're doing that little mini series um, on um, it's getting a small business up and running, especially when a friend of yours asks you how, about how to do that at a barbecue. So here we go. So into the features and services, um, as you may recall, uh, we've launched over 1,017 new features and services in 2016. 
In 2017, we launched 1,430. Um, and by the way, in case you've missed us, in so last year, in 2018, we launched 1,957 new features and services throughout that year. Phenomenal, right? So we keep going and keep scaling and keep adding new value to customers. Um, some other interesting stats. Did you know that in a single region, S3 processes at peak of up to, and over in some cases, 60 terabits per second throughout the entire day, Shane? Staggering. So I didn't know that, but you know that's something I would believe. It is a extremely popular service. We are growing and growing and growing some more. And on average, every week, AWS customers are using more compute capacity on Amazon EC2 spot instances. Right? These are the uh, you know um, instances that you can actually just grab whenever you want at the lowest possible price. Uh, so there's there are more of those running instances. Um, then customers were running in 2030. So 2013 uh, across yeah, all of, of <laughs> I am right. So 2013, uh, we're running across all of the Amazon EC2 fleet worldwide. Pretty yeah, phenomenal. And that is awesome. And I think you know now that you can leverage EC2 Spot as part of your target groups for auto scaling. It just makes it even easier. And I have customers that are you know transitioning mm. their workloads to a Spot model because of how seamless we are making it you know, to consume spot. Yeah, so you can mix you know, spot, on-demand, um, RI instances for the best possible cost utilization of the infrastructure. But there's more, Shane. There's more. There are more than 130,000 databases that have been migrated using AWS database migration service, which I know you've been using quite a bit yourself. I have in the past. I haven't touched it for a bit, but it does what it says. It does on the sticker. Yeah. It's really easy to migrate databases. Yes. And also, uh, look, we had EA, Electronic Arts, on stage at the Sydney Summit. And we also got to interview um, the VP uh, of EA on stage on Twitch. So speaking of gaming, did you know that more than 90% of, of the world's uh, biggest public game companies are actually using AWS? Phenomenal. I did not know that. Mm. And one final step, which I thought was really cool. So uh, bear with me. I'm a big fan of Amazon Connect, which is our call center as a service, completely elastic in the cloud. It has grown over 900% uh, since November 2017 to November 2018 last year. So we've got tens of thousands of uh, organizations using it, experimenting with it, like Intuit, Capital One. Um, pretty cool. Very pretty cool. cool. But any price cuts? Because people love that. Yes, yes. There's always stuff uh, on that front. And uh, if you haven't been paying attention, we have reduced prices 72 times since AWS launched back in 2006, Shane. Uh, and the one you probably might want to think about and commit to memory uh, more recently is that we've um, dropped pricing. Uh, well, not exactly drop pricing, but we've actually gone down to the per second billing for all database instances that you're actually running uh, on our RDS service, our relational database service. So this is pretty cool um, because our pricing is still listed on a per hour basis, but bills are now being calculated down to the second um, and they showed the actual usage uh, in the decimal form. So uh, a 10 minute minimum charge when an incident is created and restored is is uh uh, is charged to you. So that's pretty cool because all of a sudden uh, everything is getting cheaper and cheaper. So if you are bringing things up and down for a uh, dev and test, um, you pay the lowest possible price. And I remember when I started at Amazon, it was always by the hour, for the full hour, even if you turned it off a couple of minutes later. So this is a great new uh, um, addition to help you spend less on AWS. But anyway, that's, that's, that's my updates. Um, on with the show. I want to start the show with some small but significant changes to EC2. Now, I say significant because these are the instances at the lower end of the scale. These are the, you know, two by four Lego pieces that are common in almost all Lego designs. Are we talking Lego here, Shane? Is this, um, this going to be a Lego show? 
no, Pete, you know, come on, get with it. I'm talking about service here. So we launched the M5A and R5A last year with the AMD Epic processors, you know, at a 10% cheaper price point than their Intel brethren. We said we would fast follow with other instances. And today I want to make our listeners aware that we now have T3As. So same details, 10% lower price point than the T3s. And to refresh our memory, the T3 instances are the next generation of our low-cost, burstable, general-purpose instance types that provide a baseline level of CPU performance with the ability to burst CPU usage at any time for as long as required. You know, it's a bit different compared to the T2s. T3s are designed for applications with moderate CPU and, you know, and have the occasional temporary spike. Yeah, it's so, a burst here, right? It's, it's, it's about being able to, you know, not necessarily burst up all the way for, uh, you know, an hour or so, but periodically um, just, you know, give you some extra CPU oomph. Yeah, it could be, you know, that initial compilation before, you know, a web server gets into its serving, you know, rhythm. Yeah. But I look at the T family kind of like a smartphone or a Raspberry Pi. So, you know, five years ago, there were <laughs> these were these tiny low-powered things that you really couldn't do much. You know, I've got obviously far too many Raspberry Pis at home, but my first Pi B+, you know, you could barely run Raspbian off it. Today, you know, the latest are three B pluses, they can run game emulators. You know, they are really powerful. They're pretty impressive, and, Jane. And, and, and lots of people are using them for a whole bunch of IoT projects and lots of, you know, things like home automation. Uh, um, I've got a project that's burning a hole in the back of my um, my backlog for building a Raspberry Pi in my car as well. Oh, uh, let's talk more. We should. But look, Pete, this is not a show about cars. This is a show about AWS. Or is it about so, architects driving in cars with Raspberry Pis? Maybe it is, you know, just like... <laughs> You know, somebody, I'm going to change topics here for a second. Somebody actually, uh, in fact, my wife suggested that. I may look like James Corden a little bit. For those of you who got who watch his show um, and know me, yeah, those those chubby cheeks uh, apparently are, are very similar to uh, my facial attributes. I have to put it through recognition to figure out what the overlap <laughs> it happens to be. <laughs> I like that. So the T3s, you know, in my mind, they are just awesome. They are the jack of all trades and they're really cheap. So if you're using EC2, absolutely evaluate the T3s and the T3As as your starting point, I guess, for a broad spectrum of general purpose workloads. You know, that could be microservices, it could be small, medium databases, potentially VDI, dev environments, code repos, and so on. Hmm. You know, they, especially in the third generation, they really punch above their weight and most likely, hopefully, will surprise you. So T3As are available in US East, North Virginia, US West Oregon, Europe Island, US East Ohio, and Asia Pacific Singapore regions with a rollout continue into other regions. Now, the second bit of news I want to share is the rise and the rise of ARM. Now, you may be able to tell I'm a bit of an ARM fanboy, but Pete, what has happened with ARM and more specifically the A1 instances, which are based on our Amazon Graviton processor, which again is based on an ARM Cortex architecture. Yeah, sure, Shane. Um, so look, plenty. And um, hearing some really great stories about these uh, in the context of containers, in particular, Elastic Container Service or ECS, uh, now supports building of ECS clusters, Shane. How cool is this? Based on A1s. This is generally available. And if you uh, uh, look at the other side of the uh, container orchestration side, uh, the other coin, which is EKS, or the Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, uh, the A1s are also available uh, to build EKS clusters, but this is in a public preview. So pretty cool, which means that all of those lightweight, small things that you're going to be running, you can actually run on ECS and EKS. Uh, and starting with Kubernetes version 1.0, 
12, um, the developer pre preview of A1 instances um, lets you begin to test and experiment the uh, ARM-based nodes. So, you know, I, I, speaking of Lego, which we started on earlier, this is kind of like almost um, those Pi, you know, Raspberry Pis, which have been wrapped with uh, Lego blocks. Uh, except we're doing it for you uh, inside EKS and ECS. So this is important. You can definitely Google that. People have built, uh, you know, Raspberry Pi, I want to say supercomputers, but Raspberry Pi clusters housed in a Lego, enclo in a Lego enclosure. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty impressive, yeah. And look, why is all this stuff important? Um, not the Lego bits, but uh, <laughs> the EKS and ECS. And that is, these are sometimes these are perfect, um, you know, um, platforms uh, for ARM processors, right? Uh, typically can containers architectures are designed for scale-out, uh, bursty workloads, uh, generally for things like web servers, microservices, um, for many caching fleets um, and distributed data stores, uh, you know, support ARM e you know, ecosystem uh, on ECS and EKS. And what's cool about it is that it's uh, it's cheaper, super cheap, up to forty percent cheaper. Shane, yeah, it's awesome. You know, and consider that you know a lot of these container workloads are going to be custom code. You know, it might be developed in Node.js or Python or GoLang, etc. If you can run this on on an ARM architecture, you know, to me, it's almost like a pretty no-brainer where I'd probably start. So Shane, do you think one day we're going to get to a point where there's going to be more compute than people on the planet? Because uh, I, I kind of feel like, you know, all these IoT things, um, you know, things like um, containers, things like, you know, super dirt chip compute, like the ARM processors, uh, which are very also environmentally friendly because the, uh, the wattage and power consumption are minimalistic, um, are going to be like everywhere who knows i don't know i might have to ask a futurist here <laughs> well we we, we try to invent a future right that's that's one of the things we try to do so uh, give us feedback let us know what you think i think we may have committed a big no-no in terms of solution architecture probably more so you here but i'll take this one for the team what have i done what have we done all right so all this talk of containers ecs and eks you know what exactly are containers some of the audience may be asking hmm. so today we're going to, you know, we're going to talk a bit about container networking. So I'm going to level set a few things here. So unless you've been living under a rock, you should have heard of containers. There are no doubt containers are here to stay, but they've actually been around in various forms since, you know, the 1970s with Alex C. Um, they're popular and they remove much of the pain points around traditional compute, uh, such as, you know, EC2. And it's not to say EC2 isn't relevant, but there are definitely advantages of containers. And I think before we launch into everything container-based, let's talk, you know, how containers, how they differentiate themselves from a virtual machine slash virtual private server slash, you know, Amazon EC2. Hypervisors are a way to manage virtual machines on processes that support virtual replication of hardware. So not all processes have this feature, you know, some laptops may not, but it is standard fare on server processes like Intel Xeons and the AMD x64 architectures or even the ARM Cortex-A series in the Amazon Graviton that we've just talked about. And I think I think, so, I think the secret, Shane, has been that a lot of support in silicon for virtualization has been really incredibly helpful to drive the growth of containerizations and virtual machines because uh, in the past when uh, when I used to hack assembler, um, you know, all this stuff was supported but not particularly very well. There was a lot of software that you had to write to actually do abstractions and protections and um, protect application memory segments and so forth. But all this stuff is now in hardware. With the introduction of the virtual um, instruction sets for the CPUs, um, this has become so, so easy. Mm, it has. And look, typically a VM will run any software that runs on the bare metal. Um, but it provides isolation, you know, real isolation from the hardware. So you install your operating system and everything you would normally do on bare metal. 
Mm. Containers also provide a way to isolate and provide, you know, a virtual platform for applications to run. You know, so what's the difference? They both do this whole isolation thing. They both provide multi-tenancy. You know, they kind of sound the same. They do. And but look, there are two main differences, Shane, um, that exist between a container and a hypervisor system or a platform, right? So container systems require an underlying operating system that provides the basic services to all of the containerized applications using virtual memory support for isolation, access to file systems, networking, um, all of that plumbing, right? Whereas a hypervisor, on the other hand, runs the virtual machines that have their own operating system guests, right? And they often use um, uh, hardware virtualization support to actually make things run really fast. So container systems have a lower overhead than VMs, obviously virtual machines, uh, and container systems typically target environments where thousands of containers are in play. Whereas the general rule of thumb is that if you know if you think about it, uh, typically you can probably bin pack you know, three maybe ish times the density uh, of the uh, on the same hardware. Uh, physical hardware when you're running virtual machines versus containers. So obviously your mileage will vary depending on the hardware platform that you have. But fundamentally, imagine you have the operating system layer, then you have the hypervisor, right? Or a container management platform, right? And if you're running a hypervisor on top of the OS, then you've got the guest operating systems with their own runtimes, very large footprints required to get started. Whereas if you're running the container management layer on top of the OS, um, a lot of the, the the common functionality is actually in the OS and the application uh, instances, the, the containers that you're running are uh, launch incredibly fast. So, you know, with that common OS, that's where a Docker file comes in and you can bootstrap your application. And look, these are really small. You know, an Alpine Linux container is five megabytes in size. So you can spawn a container in a short few seconds, you know, have it up and running servicing customers. You know, try that with a VM. So Pete, mm -hmm. are we up to speed now? Uh, almost. I do actually do want to um, pay you know, pay attention to what's been happening in the ecosystem. And at AWS, we've been doing a lot of cool stuff in this space. And so so how could we bridge the best of both worlds, right? Like OSs and virtual machines. Um, and at reInvent, we actually announced something called Firecracker. Um, and Firecracker is basically our own virtualization technology that makes use of KVM. Um, and what it's about is actually lets you launch micro VMs. So it's kind of like the halfway house between both those two things. Um, and what it's really about is giving you the ability. And by the way, this is what we've been using behind the scenes, um, behind Lambda, by the way. We've also open sourced it. It's highly secure, right? Obviously, secure is our highest priority. Um, it's super high performance because you can launch micro VMs in as little as 125 milliseconds, right? It's just pretty phenomenal. Uh, it's battle tested, right? It's uh, you know it's been it's been tested by Lambda um, and also you know powering Fargate. Uh, it's got a very low overheads, five megs of, of memory per micro VM, um, and it's open source. So um, if you're into this kind of stuff, I highly recommend you you sort of. Uh, dive deep into how hypervisors, containers work, but also check out our uh, open source Firecracker project chain because uh, it does try to bridge both of those two worlds together. Good one. Okay. So if you've been looking at the AWS announcements, a new service has just gone GA. So we pre-announced it some time ago. It has now gone GA relating to networking and containers. So allow me to set the scene, Pete. Please, Shane, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. Go for it. Thank you, sir. Okay. So this might show our age and hopefully like fine wine, our culture, and give you an appreciation of where we're coming from, but probably mainly our age. Yeah. Listeners, yeah, think, you decide I think it's the age. <laughs> all right. So look, containers, you know, they're becoming commonplace. But as we transition into a more containerized world, we're often treating them in a way, you know, in which they weren't designed for. 
So if you rewind back to early 2000s, up to maybe like 2010 to 2015 era, just like when SSDs were new on the market, you know, replacing their spinning disks with, uh, you know, SCSI, SATA interfaces, you know, we wrapped the commands to them in ATA. So if you're dealing with an SSD, you'd still send an ATA command to it, like seek, read, write, you know, so that would easily assimilate into the existing interface. But SSDs, you know, they're not like disks. They don't have spinning platters and heads that need to seek. But we treat them that way until, I guess, a more native means via, say, PCIe became the norm. Now, the SATA interface's legacy and interfaces such as M2 and PCIe are the norm with signaling, signaling via the NVMe command set. So I guess the and point I'm trying to make here, Shane, is that, you know, just because this technology can behave the way it used to behave, um, there are lots of other hidden benefits. And uh, the more you focus on those, um, the more value you're going to get out of it, right? And that's exactly right. But there often needs to be a transition plan. Mm. It's like, you know, sometimes if I'm at a customer, the most technical best solution may not be the right solution for them at that point in time. So true. And I think, you know, containers are kind of a bit of the same situation here. I know it's an interesting paradigm to draw, but, you know, we are doing the same things with containers around networking that we did you know, 20 years ago, we're using mechanisms to distribute load that have been around for, you know, probably more time. than 20. Hmm. Yeah. Containers are a bit special. They're ephemeral and they can be used for some pretty high performance systems, but we often start with load balancers. And that can be a bit of an issue because, you know, they will force all traffic through them in a bit of a source nat uh, manner, but that's not really high performance. It becomes a choke point. So, you know, pre-cloud, pre there were options like, you know, MAC address or layer two forwarding, but they're not native today and you lose visibility of a traffic in one direction. Pete, the people have asked for a solution. Enter AppMesh. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of AppMesh, by the way. Um, so look, um, uh, so not something that we have dabbled too much in the past, but um, it's uh, been it's been GA since the 27th of March, right? So uh, it's available in, mo in, in most regions um, and uh, you can use it today, right? So check it out. Uh, check out our AppMesh um, because it actually helps you with your applications and deployments uh, that will actually uh, allow the flow of traffic, uh, network traffic that is, um, to your applications in a very clever, smart way. All right, so what is it, Pete? So AWS AppMesh is a service that provides application-level networking to make it easy for your services to communicate with each other across multiple different types of compute infrastructure, right? The key term here really is um, at the application level, Shane. That's the main, that's the main point and, here. Yeah, and that's because there are challenges with containers, right? Absolutely, right? It, the main thing here is that, yes, you know, when you think about it, um, the, the ephemeral nature and scale-out and burstiness of, uh, of containerized applications uh, can be quite challenging right especially when it comes to routing of traffic so this can be a a pain point uh, and this pain point is what app mesh actually um, resolves um, so it provides a consistent visible way of routing network traffic and controls for your services built across multiple types of computing infrastructure whether it's spot on demand um, in fact it's very very flexible so app mesh removes the need to um update application code that actually changes how and monitors how data is collected and how traffic flows and is routed between the, your, your actual application services. And when you think about, you know, your containerized applications, this whole thing about bin packing of lots of different services or functionality or your microservices into this highly densely packed infrastructure and then trying to figure out how to write traffic uh, is pretty, pretty hard to do, right? So AppMesh configures uh, each service to 
export you know monitoring of your data implements consistent communication control logic for your application uh, and all this makes it easy to quickly pinpoint the exact location perhaps of an error um, or something that's not working in your architecture uh, and it automatically reroutes network traffic when there are failures uh, when, or when code changes uh, need to be deployed into your infrastructure the cool thing about app mesh is compatible with um, aws fargate amazon ec2 obviously Amazon Container Services, Kubernetes, Amazon EKS, uh, all running um, on AWS. And uh, for those of you who are keen to better understand how it actually works, um, AppMesh uses the open source Envoy proxy model, uh, making it compatible with a really wide range of um, AWS partner and open source tool solutions. So look, a few things here, Pete. I think a key challenge and the why this change is important is because these days organizations are transitioning from monoliths you know, towards a more microservice architecture. But it's a challenge to manage these microservices, especially from the perspective such as the way they locate each other, you know, the interactions and communications between them, multiple versions, monitoring, who's talking to whom, and so on. And then secondly, yes, AppMesh works with EC2, but my spidey sensors are telling me here this will be mainly used with containers. And that's based on the fact that microservices, you know, they're usually deployed on containers. That's a common place. That's what my customers are telling me. I guess we'll find out. Oh, yeah. And lastly, you know, you mentioned Envoy Proxy. You know, it's the heart of AppMesh. So what is Envoy, you might ask? Well, Envoy is originally built at Lyft. You know, it's battle-tested. It's a high-performance C++ distributed proxy that's designed for single services and applications, as well as, you know, it provides a communication bus and a universal data plane designed for large microservice mesh architectures. That's a mouthful, right? <laughs> so Shane, um, how it, does AppMesh sure work? Is. A lot of people probably are probably asking us. You want to walk us through that? So look, AppMesh sets up and manages a service for your services, and it does this by running Envoy alongside each service. And AppMesh configures the proxy to handle all communications into and out to of each container, effectively you know, establishing a mesh network between your containers. Whilst it's doing this, it's collecting metrics such as error rates and connections per second, which can then be exported into CloudWatch using you know, a stats D collector. AppMesh APIs can then route your traffic based on path, weights, you know, to specific service versions. In the context of containers, that's ECS and Fargate, what you need to do is add the Envoy proxy image to task definition when you launch your application. And AppMesh helps Envoy by managing the configuration to provide service mesh capabilities. So let's get this straight. So what that means is basically by adding Envoy into your app, um, it does take care of communications and channeling all that traffic um, between your particular container and the other containers in a in a coordinated you know symphony of communication uh, and monitoring right it's exactly right you know it provides um, an api to configure traffic routes and other controls between the microservices that are meshed enabled you know i mentioned exports metrics and logs you can do tracing mm -hmm. through endpoints specified in the Envoy Bootstrap configuration. And by default, we're going to push logs to CloudWatch, but you can also push these through to you know, Splunk, Prometheus, Grafana, etc. Um, AppMesh is good. And I guess one of the value-add things we do for our customers is you only pay for the AWS resources consumed by the AppMesh proxy that runs alongside your containers. So I think in effect, this is virtually a free service where only charging you for the compute that AppMesh is consuming on your behalf. But we're taking care of the configuration and the heavy lifting here. Okay. When all service traffic flows via an AppMesh mesh, 
that's a bit of a mouthful there. You know, it becomes easy to visualize problem areas, you know, via consistent observability, tune overall performance, and so on. But Pete, back to that question I posed when we started this segment, should I use AppMesh instead of an elastic load balancer? Well, the answer is a little bit of a yes and a no, and there are patterns for both of those, right? So let me just explain this a little bit. So when you think about traffic routing, um, people may have come across the idea of a north-south routing versus east-west routing. So think of it as north-south as traffic coming from the internet into your application platform and then within the multiple tiers of it. And then once they are in a tier, you may actually be routing traffic east and west, so left and right um, of um, you know that tier that you code or the, the flow of uh, information is actually in. So our recommendation is to use our elastic load balancer to handle all the internet traffic that that comes, you know, that sends traffic in and out. Um, and that's because um, Envoy is really a lightweight um, bit of infrastructure, right? Uh, it doesn't have a lot of features uh, in terms of load balancing for tiering, um, health checks, and so forth are in there. But again, not to the same level um, that you have with the ELBs or the ALBs as well. Um, so just think about it as uh, routing uh, north-south via things like you know ALBs, ELBs, uh, east-west routing. It's probably within those tiers, within those highly elastic scaling uh, parts of your microservice um, architecture uh, is done via Envoy, right? So um, that's kind of the model that I think kind of makes sense, at least when you think about it you know, in your mind. Uh, so for internal services that connect to other services within the AWS region, um, you know, they might be traversing via, you know, ELBs, ALBs, um, but uh, AppMesh provides lots of flexibility, you know, consistency, and a lot of control also in monitoring uh, for your, you know, uh, inter-process, uh, inter-service really communication. Uh, and it's really, you know, an interesting way of controlling the flow of your of your um, um, information and API calls. Uh, it's also worth calling out, by the way, Shane, that um, when you're getting started, uh, it's a little bit different depending on if you're using pure EC2 with AppMesh, uh, whether you're using ECS, uh, Fargate, or EKS. Um, the uh, getting started guys that we have online for you um, have everything to actually get you started with the uh, sample Envoy container definitions uh, through the really complex integrated uh, solutions with X-Ray, uh, so you can actually monitor your call paths. Uh, and so it's worth checking them out. So go and visit uh, via your browser. Go and hit uh, this URL we've shortened for you. Uh, hit uh, bit.ly bit.ly slash start at mesh um, and that'll give you some um, that'll take it to a landing page and you can select the path uh, of the getting started guides uh, developer documentation uh, and uh, see how far you get with the samples excellent so just a bit of a call out here to a fellow solution architect who delivered a fantastic session on app mesh at sydney summit so keep your eyes uh tuned to your screens i would probably say within three to four weeks his session will be online it's probably a great session to help you get up to speed with AppMesh and get started. And that is Nick's son, by the way. He's the architect we're talking about. Go Nick. Go okay. Nick. So Shane, uh, pivoting from you know really cool, interesting you know, network routing for your microservice architectures of the uh, of tomorrow, uh, starting today. Um, what else is there um, out there around you know toolkits and integration for uh, Visual Studio Code? Yeah, I think my brain's a bit sore after that conversation. There was a lot to take in there. <laughs> There's a fair bit. So we hope you guys could actually follow us and visualize all those things we we're talking about. Righto. So look, ever since I started at Amazon, which seems like a while now, you know, OSX has become my OS of choice for various reasons. And my IDE of choice is VS Code. And I don't think it's just me. You know, often when I'm in customer land, 
you kind of see it everywhere. It's fast becoming the de facto standard for a lot of users on OS X. Why I think VS Code has become so popular is the fact that there are plugins making it extensible. And now in the Visual Studio Marketplace, searchable within the app, you can find a plugin called the AWS Toolkit. So it's still in developer preview and its focus is on the modern developer. So you can read into this as I have, I'm reading into this as you know serverless. And it complements other plugins from us such as AWS Amplify and AWS CLI. Now this toolkit is still in preview, but it provides an integrated one-stop experience for developing serverless applications in Node.js with more languages and features to come soon. Come on PowerShell. Hey, come on PowerShell indeed. But listen, if you go and grab it, um... There's a whole truckload of built-in project templates that leverage the AWS uh, service application model. And so this is AWS SAM that we've talked about in the show in the past. And it can define and configure all of your resources there. Right? The toolkit um, also into includes integrated experiences for stepping through and debugging chain serverless applications with the... Um, uh, SAM CLI, uh, which makes it really easy uh, for you to do this all from this, this one integrated development environment. Very, very cool. Um, some of the other things that you can actually um, do via the complementary plugins is that you can manage support for all of your resources within your account. Uh, so you can do things like list the available CloudFormation stacks that contain serverless applications, list all of your Lambda functions, uh, also invoke Lambda functions and see the corresponding outputs. Um, develop you know, serverless applications locally and then have them deployed into your AWS account, into a live, um, you know, Lambda publicly accessible endpoints, you know, create, um, deploy and manage all of your SAM applications. So it's pretty cool because uh, uh, lots of functions uh, are available within this plugin. Um, they're also available through the command palette. So uh, Visual Studio Code has this ability to actually uh, open up a tiny little console there and you can type within it uh, to access available commands. You can choose to, you know, do things like view uh, and, uh, you know, edit uh, from the menu bar, but you can also use the CLI by typing AWS column uh, it'll actually help to auto-complete your commands, Shane. So again, another way to make you more effective as a developer. Yeah, where was this a year ago when I really needed this? I think I had a bit of a play with this. If you are debugging Lambda functions and you are using VS Code, it's definitely worth a download and having a look here because it will allow you to um, you know, invoke your functions, pass in a sample payload request, view the output, without having to go into CloudWatch as an example. So really cool. And look, I say whilst I use VS Code, obviously you know, we are all different. What works for me may not work for you. You may be using Sublime or maybe even the full-blown Visual Studio. And we have plugins and modules to speed up development efforts in most IDEs. So Shane, what about Nano and maybe VI? I think on that question, Pete, it is time to close the show. It is indeed. So today we covered a few significant announcements that occurred in the last month that really helped the modern builder. We covered some quick announcements around EC2. So the T3As are now a thing. And what's more, our A1 instances are finding their way out there into ECS and EKS with the latter being in preview. Again, with ARM being so much cheaper, if you're running your own code or you know compiled script engines, this is definitely worth a look. And look, we also then set the scene around containers and uh, uh, romanticized about the past 
<laughs> and uh, how things differ in a, in a virtual machines world uh, and compared that and introduced to uh, AWS AppMesh, which is a service mesh that provides application level networking to make it easy for your um, services to communicate with each other and be monitored. Before rounding out the show with the AWS toolkit for Visual Studio Code to complement our existing plugins, which provides an integrated one-stop experience for developing and debugging service applications in Lambda and AWS SAM. Woohoo! Thanks for your time here today, Pete. Listeners, join us again for another fun-filled adventure in the world of AWS Cloud. We'd like to hear you know, what you like, perhaps what you don't like. So don't be shy. Send us an email at AWS Tech Chat. That's AWS Tech Chat, one word, at Amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building. Keep on building. Bye, Bye for now. now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>